Welcome to TYT's The Conversation. It is your host, Adrian Lawrence. And now I am joined by civil rights attorney and the author of Sexual Justice Supporting Victims, Ensuring Due Process and Resisting the Conservative Backlash. That's Alexandra Brodsky. Thank you so much for joining us, Alexandra. Thanks for having me. Yes, so there's a lot going on right now. And I know your book, Sexual Justice, is so incredibly needed, especially since we had just had the 50th anniversary of Title IX. Also, we're seeing these issues come up when it comes largely to privacy rights that impact gender with this Roe v. Wade leak from the Supreme Court with that draft opinion. I don't even know where necessarily to begin, but let's go ahead and start with your book, Sexual Justice. So can you give the viewers kind of a snapshot about what you are writing about? Sure, so sexual justice was my attempt to intervene in this public conversation that we've been having over the last couple of years about what it means to respond fairly to allegations of sexual harassment in a way that's fair to everyone involved. And really the the crux of the book is that we've gotta be able to hold two things in our heads at the same time. And one is that absolutely, whenever someone's accused of wrongdoing, including sexual wrongdoing and they deny it, they should have the opportunity to tell their side of the story. Their their employer or their school shouldn't jump to conclusions. But what's also true is that anti-feminists, particularly on the right, have co-opted these concerns about due process for the accused, really not to ensure fairness, but to ensure that victims are never heard, to ensure that men and particularly white men never get in trouble for sexual harms. And so we've gotta be able to recognize both dynamics at once. No, absolutely, and that's something when I wrote my book that I definitely seem to run into. This whole call for due process was largely this thought of, oh, let's not hold these white men accountable for their misconduct. And we'd see a number of people who were accused of sexual harassment, whether it was valid or not, generally befell men of color or men who are on lower on the spectrum, whether it is class. But these things that really show us how the hierarchies in our society operate. And so when you say in terms terms of people being heard on both sides. Um, are you saying that these generally white men who are accused of sexual harassment are not getting a fair shake in terms of not being heard? I think that by and large, they are getting more than a fair shake. And I guess that's part of what I find frustrating, that it's certainly true when we work look at, let's say, workplaces today, where in a non-unionized workplace, private company, a worker can be fired at any time for basically any reason. And so I have no doubt that there are workers who are fired every day for based on accusations of things that they they didn't really do. And I'm not just talking about sexual harassment, I'm talking about all kinds of you know alleged wrongdoing. And so I think that we should certainly be attuned to building up fair investigations within workplaces, within schools. And that's not anti-survivor, right? That's good for victims too, because they also want the chance to tell to explain what happened, to present evidence. What what kills me though is that we see, let's say someone like Governor Cuomo, who talk about a fair process, he had an independent investigation put together by the New York Attorney General that found that he had committed sexual harassment against multiple employees. And still after all that, he and his supporters were going around saying, well, what about due process? What about due process? And that's just a meaningless term at that point. All he's saying is it's unfair that I could ever face repercussions for my actions. No, absolutely, I couldn't agree more. And that's something that I definitely ran across in my research in terms of people 
They're largely upset because they had to face some semblance of accountability. And also in part because it's this mentality oftentimes that I like to call them harassholes think that they are not facing any consequences because their colleagues are engaging in the similar behavior. But that's also this mentality of everybody does it. And generally when it comes to misconduct, a lot of people think, oh well, everybody does it. Like everybody lies, everybody steals, everybody skims off the top. And that's very much a harassment mentality when it's not necessarily true, where it is generally limited to a smaller number of people who are engaged in behavior, but they have in their mind this thought that this is normalized because they've normalized it in their own mentality. But when it comes also to normalized behavior, I really don't know that Title IX has been fully normalized, even though it's 50 years in, because there still seems to be this significant fight when it comes to particularly colleges and this experience around sexual harassment. And so, what have you found and what have you learned? In your experience, I'm sure that showed up in your book. Absolutely, I think it's some of our most contentious fights about fair process for sexual harassment allegations have focused on college campuses today, where you know there's been a tremendous wave of activism by student survivors over the last you know decade, 15 years, that really encouraged other survivors to come forward and ask their schools for help. Um, when they faced some kind of sexual harm that was making it tough for them to learn. And um, in response to that and to some increased enforcement of the federal civil rights law, Title IX under the Obama administration, a lot of schools started putting together procedures to deal with these kinds of issues for the first time. And you know, one thing that I talk about a lot in the book is that a lot of people look at those procedures and they think that they're unfair just because they don't look like a criminal trial. You know, people, you know, in their heads, they think, oh, rape is a crime. That means that the only fair way to investigate it is, you know, a judge and jury and cops. But, you know, rape, rape is, is a crime, but it also is a civil rights issue. And schools and workplaces have an obligation to address that to ensure that survivors can continue to participate in public life. And necessarily, their investigations are going to look different than the criminal justice systems. You know, we all, anyone who's been in a workplace has seen, you know, that HR can look into a problem in the office or look into a problem among the, you know, the employees without, you know, putting a bunch of people in robes and having a formal trial. That definitely seems to be the case, and particularly something I found that in workplaces, that you get far more a quote unquote due process and opportunities when it comes to sexual harassment. But if you are literally skimming off the top, if you're embezzling, they will put you out on your butt very quickly. And it seems to be a lack of recognition of the fact that your behavior being a harasshole is effectively skimming off the top. It is causing you to lose revenue. It is causing you to lose workers, whether it comes to optimal performance or even just their ability to truly perform their duties and jobs. And the same thing with Title IX in terms of individuals, primarily women, being able to attend school to learn because schools are businesses at the end of the day. So they are losing. They're losing money at the end of the day. And that's not something that's fully recognized when it comes to the sexual misconduct that goes on, whether it be in the workplace or whether it be in the educational system. I think that that's absolutely right. And I think that you know, you're know you so right to point to the other kinds of misconduct that employers or schools are dealing with, where you know. Employers know how to investigate when someone is really obviously losing, you know, gonna gonna hurt their bottom line. Um, schools know how to investigate when someone cheats on a paper, and we don't have this kind of, uh, you know, 
widespread concern that people are being railroaded when they face repercussions for those for that kind of misconduct. And suddenly you put sex into the equation and everyone is convinced the allegation must be untrue, the accused must be treated unfairly. And that really stops us from having you know, smart, important conversations of what does a fair process look like? What's good for victims? What's what's fair to the accused? And it's really hard to have that conversation when we're constantly dealing with bad faith actors who just want to make sure that sexual harassment is is swept under the rug. No, absolutely. And something that I I at least attribute that to is the thought that if they actually acknowledge the fact that it has nothing to do with sex, that this is a power play because they're maintaining the hierarchies that are in place in our society, they'd have to actually acknowledge that those hierarchies exist and they don't want to do that, particularly in places like academia. And when you look at major companies, because you know we see the dynamics of who is a CEO, also who gets tenured positions. We know academia is primarily white male dominated when it comes to leadership and who calls the shots. Same thing when we're talking about major companies. Companies. And so this is where you see a lot of this go down because what it essentially is doing is telling primarily women and people who do not fit this cis hetero white Christian model. It's telling them that we want you to play small, we want you out. We want to put you in a box and hopefully put that box out near the trash. And so if that's not acknowledged that it's nothing to do with sex, but it's more to do with power, then they'd have to acknowledge that they are in positions of power by virtue of the systems that are created. I think that's so right. And it also, I think, helps to explain why organizing around sexual harassment by workers or by students, by by medical patients can serve as sort of the, the canary in the coal mine about broader issues of inequality within an institution. You know, often workers will come together first to talk about sexual harassment in their workplace. And that can lead down the road to unionization because as they're figuring out, well, what are we, you know, what is what is the boss doing wrong around sexual harassment? They realize how power is working there and that they need to come together to resist that. Yes, and it definitely seems like it becomes even more of an uphill climb now that we have the GOP running this terror operation to essentially attack every marginalized group from every angle. I guess, what are your thoughts on that? Oof, I mean, yeah, it has been a, uh, you know, I'm, we're talking now after just a brutal week of news from the Supreme Court. And, you know, a, a common theme I see in all of this is the way that the GOP is able to pretend that they're acting to protect women, to protect workers, to protect children, when actually what they're doing is undermining those exact people's rights. So it just has been killing me to see the way that Republicans have been celebrating what seems to be the end of Roe by saying that that'll be you know, good for women. Um, when you know, if they were actually interested in uh, women's health, in supporting families, there are a million and one things that they could do, and instead they're going after women's autonomy and people's autonomy to you know build the families that they want. Yeah, and it's interesting um, that whole thought that we're doing what's best for women. That whole benevolent sexism thing is running rampant, and that's exactly what's going on. They're holding us down by virtue of their claims that they're lifting us up. But I definitely want to lift up your book, Sexual Justice. So can you please tell the viewers where they can find it? Absolutely. Um, you can find it uh, wherever books are sold. Um, the hardcover is already out, and the paperback will be out uh, in on uh, in June, June fourteenth. Fantastic. Thank you so, so much for joining us, Alexander. And where can people find you on social media? I'm at AZ Brodsky on Twitter.
Fantastic. Once again, that's Alexander Brodsky, the author of Sexual Justice, Supporting Victims, Ensuring Due Process, and Resisting the Conservative Backlash. Thank you so much for joining us, Alexander. Thank you. We continue with the conversation and you get more of Adrian Lawrence. And this time I am bringing you democracy correspondent and national reporter who covers voting rights in the United States. That is Sam Levine. Thank you so much for joining us, Sam. Hey, Adrian, happy to be here. Yeah, so I know Georgia has just seen its first major test for the GOP defending democracy. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, early voting just started last week in Georgia for the Republican primary. And one of those races is what I think is the most important race in America happening this year for democracy. It's the Republican primary for Secretary of State. Brad Raffensperger, who's the incumbent Republican, famously stood up to President Trump in 2020, refusing his request to, to overturn the election. And President Trump has been furious ever since then and has endorsed a candidate, Congressman Jody Heiss, in an effort to oust Raffensperger from office. Congressman Heiss has said the election was stolen. He joined efforts to overturn the election. He told me in Atlanta last week he saw no problem with Trump's call to Secretary Raffensperger asking him to find votes for him. So it's a very explicit effort to replace someone who refused to overturn an election with someone who would be more willing to do that. So, well, what I'm hearing, Sam, is that Brad messed around and essentially made the mistake of telling the truth and standing up for democracy. And so now as a result of that, there's a potential that he may not be able to keep his position as Secretary of State. How likely is it that he may not stay in his position? Well, this race is really, really close. All the polling shows that most voters are undecided and it's very, very close. I would say it's a toss up. I, I talked to voters who were supporting Secretary Raffensperger. I talked to voters who were supporting Congressman Heiss. Um, but there's a couple more weeks of early voting and uh, you know, we'll, we'll find out. But it's a really, really close race and I would bet that it goes to a runoff election. Interesting. And we know recently that the Georgia State Board of Elections had to prosecute, quasi defend the case against Marjorie Taylor Greene in terms of whether she could remain on the ballot because of her involvement with the January 6th insurrection. And ultimately, the, um, the administrative law judge determined that she can stay on the ballot. And thus, uh, I guess we can infer that it was determined that she did not participate in the January 6th insurrection or there was not sufficient evidence of such. But as a result of that, I know Raffensperger's office had to be involved in it. Is this in part what might be hurting him? Well, I think the final determination is ultimately up to Secretary Raffensperger. I think the administrative law judge gave him a huge way out. It kind of threw him a bone by ruling that she should be eligible. So all Raffensperger's office would have to do now is is accept the judge's finding. And it would be difficult to imagine a world in which he would vote to keep her off the ballot, especially given all the pressure that he's facing from the right in his party. So I would expect him to agree with the administrative law judge and, and allow her on the ballot. 
Okay, and I also know that, um, well, there's still that prosecution going on there uh, when it comes to Trump and the call he made to Raffensperger. So I guess when these voters are coming to the polls, are they considering that? Um, how is this playing into the mix? Yeah, I didn't talk to any voters who seemed aware or particularly concerned that there was an ongoing criminal inquiry. This is in Fulton County, the, the district attorney there has convened a special grand jury to investigate whether Trump's call to Secretary Raffensperger broke the law. Um, and that's still in you know kind of early stages. I think we'll find out more in the coming months. And the DA there has said that they're not gonna make any announcements uh, ahead of an elect of the election um, at the end of May. So I think we'll we'll learn more after the election, but I think it's unlikely to play a major role in the primary. And I know Trump is not necessarily one for people who have stood up to him or spoken out against him. And he likes to use his megaphone to tear people down who have done that. Uh, has he used that against Raffensperger? Absolutely, Trump has fumed against Secretary Raffensperger almost constantly since 2020. He's called him a rhino and you know, very aggressively campaigned against him, called for him to be voted out of office. Secretary Raffensperger told me late last year that they haven't spoken since 2020 and he doesn't really expect to speak to the president again. But President Trump has made it very clear that this is one of the major scalps that he'd like to get as sort of revenge for efforts to stand up to him after the 2020 election. The other major figure in Georgia, of course, is Governor Brian Kemp, who also seem, who seems to be poised to beat the challenger that President Trump has endorsed, David Perdue, and pretty easily. So it seems unlikely that Trump is gonna get a win in the governor's race, but it seems more unclear when it comes to this very important Secretary of State race. I guess let me ask you for those of us who don't remember, why did Trump endorse Purdue as opposed to Kemp? Well, after the 2020 election, Trump and his allies put a lot of pressure on Governor Kemp to convene a special session of the Georgia legislature to try and appoint electors to the Electoral College in favor of President Trump. Governor Kemp, who's a very, very conservative governor, refused to do that. He said, "You know, my hands are tied by the law, I have to certify the election. I don't have the authority to call a special session to do this and basically refused to go along with that. Um, Trump has endorsed David Perdue, who lost his reelection to the Senate uh, last year um, in an effort to oust Kemp. Uh, Perdue has sort of done a 180 and now says the election was stolen, um, that you know it was rigged. And, and this is very clearly retaliation against uh, Governor Kemp uh, for failing to, to accept President Trump's wish to convene a special session. Wow, and so when it comes to the constituents there and individuals in Georgia, especially after they've seen kind of Kemp steal his position to begin with, and also these attacks on Raffensperger, are people in Georgia kind of more positioned to, I hate to say it, get right? Well, I, I think that a lot of voters I talked to are still kind of just tuning into the to the primary, and it wasn't clear to me that they're going to go along with the effort to 
get rid of Secretary Raffensperger. I talked to lots of voters who said, you know, I like Trump. Um, I, I'm a fan of Trump, but I'm going to vote for Raffensperger. He did the right thing. He did his job. Uh, and that's the person that I want in office. So it's not entirely clear to me that Trump is going to be successful uh, to, to get Jody Heiss into office. Yeah, and that would be very nice in the event that he wasn't successful at all. And I guess let's talk a little bit about down there in Georgia, Marjorie Taylor Greene. So assuming she can stay on the ballot, how do things look for her? Well, she represents a very conservative district in Georgia. I spent a little bit of time last week in that district and she'll have a Democratic challenger. She'll have primary challengers, but I think it's going to be very hard to oust her from office. She's a nationally known figure, you know, obviously extremely controversial, um, but she comes from a very, very conservative district, and I think it's very hard to imagine a world in which a Democratic opponent would beat her. Oh, that's too bad. It's funny you say conservative, and I don't equate that to um, stupid. Um, so part of me just was hoping people would uh, be a little bit wiser in their choices, given uh, what MTG has brought to the table, and know that hopefully they can do better. But it does sound like maybe they realize um, that she does have some kind of stronghold. Uh, but it would be great if individuals were a little bit more intelligent in terms of the leadership that they choose. Uh, maybe they need to suffer a little bit before they make wise decisions, but. I'll just leave it there. And in terms of where we're going when it comes to these midterms coming up, I guess, what do you forecast in terms of how things will shake out? Well, this is a midterm election that still looks very, very strong for Republicans. Republicans are picking up seats in the House through redistricting and a midterm election. Republicans traditionally do very well when there's a Democrat in the White House. The president's party traditionally does not do well in the midterms. So this really seems like it is Republicans election to lose. I think you know the Supreme Court's decision it potentially overturning Roe versus Wade could complicate that, could energize an entire new wave of voters to come out. But I think right now it still really looks like Republicans are poised to do extremely well in the midterm elections. And do you think with this draft Roe v. Wade opinion, essentially gutting the privacy rights that accompany abortion and rights to contraception and everything else that really kind of follows the progeny, do you think that that in any way is going to sway Republicans at all, whether it be Republican women, white women, particularly in Georgia? I think it could. I mean, we know that the the crucial areas of the country are sort of suburban. Um, areas where you know there was sort of a move away from President Trump. Democrats are obviously going to be extremely focused on those areas, and I would expect very strong messaging targeting women in these areas. You know, framing this as an issue about personal liberty, um, uh, personal choice that that cuts across partisan lines. So I think Democrats are certainly hoping that they'll be able to make some inroads there. Yeah, because I could imagine it, and particularly in part because I guess I'm just tired of seeing individuals vote against their own interests, particularly white women. And it led us to the situation here, and so it makes me wonder, do you end up having to be in a full maroon 
gown with your hood on before you realize that it's a problem and maybe you should vote in your own interest. But I hope that day doesn't come, but it looks like it is right there on the forefront. So let's hope that the women down there in Georgia get it together because I would very much appreciate that. And I think the rest of the United States would, at least those of us in Cali. But in terms of individuals across the nation who wanna follow you and to find out more about what you're doing in terms of your reporting and also what you are covering, where can they find you on social media? Sam. Uh, I'm on Twitter uh, at SRL, SRL, just those three letters. All right, you got in early, I'm guessing, with your Twitter name. So that is fantastic. Well, I want to thank you so, so much for joining us. We very, very much appreciate it. That is Sam Levine, democracy correspondent and national reporter covering voting rights in the United States. Thanks so much, Sam. Thanks so much.